we hear a lot about artificial intelligence. And we've got industry leaders with different visions of the future, both good and bad, but that's not where we'll be focused today. What matters right now is to understand how and where you should be applying artificial intelligence to your business. And we've got the perfect guest today to help us all understand what it means to make AI an integral part of your business strategy. I'm John Pryle, and welcome to the Impact Podcast. So our very special guest today is Bradford Cross. Bradford is a founding partner at Data Collective, the world's leading machine learning and big data venture capital fund. He was also the founder of two machine learning startups since 2009. I should also mention that the audio quality of today's podcast is, well, not as good as we'd like it to be, but we think the content is strong, so we hope you give it a listen. Welcome, Bradford. Thank you. I mean, you're both a venture capitalist work, you know, with your work through the Data Collective Venture Capital, DCVC, and of course, you're a CEO and entrepreneur. Can you talk to me a bit about your view of both of the roles that you play? Both cases, you're making, you're trying to understand the markets and making bets that you think will work in the markets. But in the case of the entrepreneur, you need to believe in your bet much more since you're betting with your time and livelihood for many years. Or as an investor, is of course making several bets. So there's a lot more that can be said about that, but I think that's the primary difference. Sure. And as you look at your investments, they seem to be obviously all about AI first. What made you go that way? Well, this is just what I've always worked on from school onward. I was always working on uh, computer science and building models, and I was working in finance. So it was always a multi-major, always working in the finance domain, always doing a bit of both. So it was natural, like, you know, I did machine learning for hedge funds initially. Later, I was at Google. Then I did machine learning startups for the past 10 years. I've done doing an AI VC fund. I'm always doing some mix of these, you know, building models and doing AI and doing finance. And there was a quote in one of your earlier blog posts. You were talking, and early in your days in uh, DCVC, you talked about a data sidecar. I mean, this is maybe my metaphor. Maybe it's not as strong. I'm not sure that AI is a, is viewed as a, a sidecar in your view, or is it more viewed as a turbo engine? How do you view AI as it relates to the data that you're collecting in these in the application space? The idea there is like if you take, for example, Amazon. Right? Amazon at its core is an e-commerce business. It's not an AI business. They do a lot of machine learning and they use it to optimize revenue and they sell maybe 30 or 40 or more percent more product because of all their recommendation engines and all this other kind of shit, right? But at the same time, they're not a core AI company. Their absolute core business is not driven by machine learning and and this kind of stuff. I, I would argue that Google is because its core is like kind of a computer science problem. Facebook, again, same deal. It's not, there's a lot of AI going on there, a lot of machine learning It's used to drive revenue and you know, increase revenue, increase engagement. But it's, it is a sidecar in the sense of what we meant by data sidecar. And so if you, if you look for what a, a core AI business is, this is a business where the main value of the company is delivered uh, through using models and in particular cases where models are letting you do it in a new and, and kind of disruptive type of way, not just a small optimization of something. 
right? Like a recommendation engine that's increasing the click-through rate of something. And over my career, you know, I've kind of seen that I do understand the difference between, you know, an infrastructure company. Obviously, I spent a long time at IBM and it was a lot of infrastructure investment versus applications. And, and they both work for different companies. But I really like your discussions of what, you know, why vertical AI might matter for a startup CEO. And there's a lot of components to, to vertical AI. If we could start with the kind of the UI, UX, do you see that as the most important piece for someone to own? Uh, and, and then how does a company kind of evolve from that? Most important thing is the data flywheel. So if you want to think about AI, the magic of an AI good or AI business is that it's like compounding interest where the model is this compounding machine and, and the product is generating more data and the data is like every year compounding the value of the data and the model together. And you're continuing to do research and adding new features and you're gathering more and more data. You're gathering more different kinds of data and also more of it over time. And, and you're this flywheel or symbiosis of between the data that you're gathering from the product and the models that are, that are delivering some core value. It, it literally compounds its value, right? So this, for, for me, this means that you, you, the most important things are, number one, in the, in the interface or the product or whatever, how you're capturing that data. So owning, yeah, if maybe it's the UX or the UI of an application, or maybe it means that you have to own some physical hardware device in order all the information out of the sensors that you need. It means you need to own some interface point that's key and get data from that. So that's proprietary data for you. And that data is part is the feedback loop that's the labeled data for the core machine learning models. And the machine learning models have to render some core value to the, to the business, like cutting down time and doing something or increasing revenue or doing something very important, right? And so then, then you have this compounding loop of value, that's what I'm saying. So models keep getting better from having more data, keep getting more data from people using the application or your device being installed or whatever, and you get this flywheel going. So it's those two points. It's the, it's the interface point where you gather the data, and it's the models which deliver the core value. And it is about getting the unique data that you could capture. So, you know, when you talk about, and that was one of your presentations, you talked about the golden data set. It's not a matter of just aggregating all the different data points available through different APIs and sources you could scrape because anybody else could, could do that. You really want to make sure what you've got is, is, is differentiated. Okay? What a lot of people do is what I would consider clever ways to bootstrap, but not the end goal. So whenever you're starting one of these AI companies, you know you need data and you're not Facebook. You start with nothing. So you do all kinds of different trickery and shenanigans to get data. Sometimes you even simulate stuff and then use that data. But you've, you've got to somehow be tricky in order to manifest data from starting from nothing, right? So, so you always have to have a bunch of clever stuff and tricks in the beginning. But the, a great data company or AI company over time is gathering new data through how its product works. So it's kind of like, you know, with, uh, with great social products, they grow because the way that 
that are used naturally leads to the product itself being shared with other people, like Facebook or these other apps. So that the app itself, the way you use it, makes you want to bring other people to it to share stuff with them. So it grows like by its nature. And I think this is the same thing with data and finance, basically. It's like a data network effect to some degree. Yes. You'd often talk about the full stack. What's your sense and your definition of if someone's doing a startup, what would be a full stack uh, versus the commoditization of what, what you should use that's, in a, that's already a commodity or not? Again, we, we talked about the, the kind of the end user side of things. Let's work, work our way down the stack a bit if we can. Well, so, I mean, this means that, so let's talk about a standard enterprise software setup, right? So you want to own the applications, you want to have PMs and designers and front-end engineers and you're building an application, like some kind of a web app. You want to have systems that are dealing with all the data, might be a bunch of systems running out in AWS, doing a bunch of web crawling and NLP and stuff like that. It might have some systems that are deployed inside of a bank or inside of a, of a pharma company or whatever, whatever your customer segment is. So that you have these systems components and then of course you have the machine learning and the research. This is what I mean by full stack for the kind of companies that I'm talking about for gas. You have this, you have a, there's a lot of data going on. So you have a whole dedicated systems component just for dealing with the big complex systems that are happening. There's a lot of queues and data stores and search indexes and all kinds of shit that has to be dealt with to build these kinds of systems. And then, you, and then of course, deploy them in real life. So, you know, the, you have basically product systems and machine learning effectively, right? And that's kind of what I mean by full stack. So you're, you're doing the entire thing. It's okay to, you mentioned AWS, but it's okay. They, a lot of these companies, Facebook, Google, are offering different pieces of technology, whether it's TensorFlow or Lex. They're all available to startups to use. You're good with using those pieces of, uh, uh, maybe it's inappropriate, but I'll call them commoditized uh, technology. Well, absolutely. I mean, you want to use as much open source as possible and as much cloud services that, are, that economically make sense as possible. I think that's a no-brainer. You know, this is a, when, when I talk about vertical versus horizontal AI startups and why vertical ones are good and horizontal ones aren't. This is a big reason why. Because nowadays you use a bunch of different open source stuff and cloud stuff and, and some custom work. And then you've got your, your project going, if you know what you're doing, right? So the teams that know what they're doing, that's just how they do stuff. So then they don't really need to buy your machine learning as a service API thing because they do all these different open source tools and SaaS stuff. This is, I think, the problem with those machine learning as a service kinds of things. But in terms of, in terms of using all the open source machine learning stuff and Python and Scala and otherwise, and same for all of the laser, let's call them big data open source system stuff and using everything on AWS or Google Cloud or whatever. Of course, that's like paramount to not reinvent the wheel these days because there's so much great stuff out there in the open source community. 
So the perfect team has got the product manager, the data scientists that know how to use all the techniques and, and knows what's out there that's available in the open source world to work with, as well as kind of that application specific subject matter expertise. You pull those three pieces of the triangle together, you should have kind of the core base to start building some technology from this. Is that, is that a fair way to say, or is that too simplistic? You have subject matter expertise. You have product managers, and then and then you have the different types of engineering, right? So, and, and it's important because actually there's a lot of engineering in building these systems. So you have product engineering, people building the actual applications. You have systems engineering because these things have like a huge and complicated footprint of different data stores that they're touching, and a lot of it is very sensitive data. And then, of course, we have huge stuff running on the cloud and data being passed back and forth between banks and the cloud and stuff like this. So it's very complicated systems. And then you have all the machine learning and research stuff. So what you really have is you have a tag team of the product manager and the subject matter expert as the folks that are leading things from the domain and business prioritization side. And then you have this triple team of the product manager, systems manager, and machine learning manager that are running stuff on the technical side. And I would say that's, that's like the full uh, typical type of leadership setup that I would expect to see from one of these companies. Excellent. Can we talk just a bit about the enterprises and kind of how you see them as attractive exits uh, for, for a lot of these small companies that are starting in this space? Well, I think there's a lot of these large companies that have a huge amount of cash and aren't innovating very well and taking new products to market. So I think they're definitely prone to buy a bunch of companies. It seems like a pretty natural setup. You've got uh, loads of enterprise IT companies or people that are selling applications into the business side that make sense to be bought by these juggernauts like IBM and SAP, Salesforce, Oracle, these kinds of players. Because if you look at their products and what they're doing, it's like, it's really lousy. Like, look at Oracle, for example, like they run a great financial services line of business, but at this point, it's just pure sales. The products are just total rubbish. And it's like that with most of these larger legacy enterprise companies, they're just not keeping their products like up to date and modernized and seeing the bigger opportunities with new ways of doing things with machine learning and doing more stuff on the public clouds and so on. There's a huge amount of opportunity there and I definitely think they're missing the opportunities and they're bound to make big acquisitions, including I think some of those guys will buy, will do big acquisitions of these quasi-tech, quasi-services things like Cloudera and Palantir and stuff like that, you know. Like, my, like, IBM basically totally missed this quote-unquote big data wave. And then, you know, Palantir and Cloudera and all these guys are basically, you know, what IBM should have done if they got the big data wave right. right? They totally missed it. Now they're tweaking out and trying to get it right on, on AI by, like, pointing at Watson and this weird Jeopardy thing, amalgamation of other weird stuff. In the and they're like, here, now we're doing it. But in reality... None of these none of these legacy players is really on top of building modern applications in enterprise. So I think they're definitely bound to buy 
the end of the road is more companies, especially because they're still doing great financially, so they're building up these cash hoards, right? They, they have hordes of cash. But the innovation is all happening in startup land. So I would predict more acquisitions, more investment in corporate venture capital and corporate development, more attempts to do kind of innovation and labs and stuff like that. Because this, the main stuff they're trying to do, the main bets, they're just not working. They're not panning out very often. You know, even for the new, even even for the newer companies, look at Google and Facebook and their growth. It's all been through acquisition deals. They aren't, they aren't shipping brand new products that are awesome. That's not happening. So if they're not doing it, then what do you think IBM is going to do with SAT and Oracle and stuff, right? Indeed. So let, let's let's just shift gears a bit. I'd like to talk a bit about applications. And I'm fascinated when you did your early work with Merlin Intelligence. Why did you start with anti-money laundering? What made that interesting as an as something to attack? I look at opportunities in a particular way. And using a specific framework, which I won't divulge here today, unfortunately, folks. Um, and it led me to work on anti-money laundering stuff. And there was enough data, obviously, to, to, to build a solution from, of course. You, you, you knew what was required to get it working. There's many, many, many problems in financial crime compliance. Some of them have to be solved with a bunch of certain kinds of internal data and others don't. We started with ones that don't. Please talk to me a bit more about a cross-industry view. If an entrepreneur is thinking about an opportunity area, where does he or she look? Just looking at big industries or big sectors and seeing where there seems to be huge problems in those sectors and not very much venture investment or startups. And for me, that's the most interesting the most interesting thing to do right now because there's so much opportunity out there in different industries. So, you know, of course, you naturally will gravitate towards financial services and healthcare, maybe in some energy, you know, transportation and stuff, going, you know, going to these huge industries. But, you know, look for problems which are timely and meaning they're important right now and that, and that just don't have that much, you know, investment or competition, preferably even not. A lot of people working out there working on the same shit. You know what I'm saying? They're out there working on another self-driving thing. And everybody's working on a self-driving thing, right? And there's a lot of genius teams out there working on a self-driving thing. We don't, we don't need another one of these at this point. So, you know, so go and do, do something that's different. And because there's so many huge problems out there to solve. It's going to go hunt them down in the market and be open to going into whatever industry, you know. But really, there's like five or six like of the biggest ones where you're going to want to end up. Just look them up on Wikipedia or whatever. You know, I think they're even in this one blog post I have. Just look for whatever the largest you know sectors are and only only do stuff in the top five or whatever. So you're in naturally big markets. And then just do some do some research, see what you find. You know, but try but just try to stay away from these weird themes that emerge. You know, I'm always not trusting of these weird themes like AR, VR, all this kind of stuff. When you see these weird themes, like it's not around a need, right? It's around some kind of tech. And the people don't give a shit about tech, they care about their needs, right? So I want to hear I want to hear about a theme which is around needs 
And I don't want to hear about any themes that are around tech. Maybe there's some needs that are met with it and some applications that are interesting to talk about that could be. But, you know, that's, that's, you've got to really be careful about following these abstract technical themes because I think there's a huge amount of uh, ships crashed against the cliffs when you're following those, those themes. Right, right. You've got the technology, you know, find the app that makes the sense that that adds value to the end user customers. Uh, absolutely. I, th- I think we're with you all the way. Uh, Bradford Cross, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. A pleasure. Yeah, thanks a lot. And uh, it was great chatting. And I'll talk soon. Cheers. Wow. So that's some great food for thought. And it's not about technology for technology's sake. And it's not necessarily about chasing the same hot thing that everybody else is chasing. Know your space, collect some differentiated data, and then apply artificial intelligence and make something big. That's a victory in my book. Thanks for listening. For the Impact Podcast, I'm John Pryor.